0: There we go. I don't know if that comes through, but uh, that is uh, Dave Brubreck's quartet or quintet. Anyway, his musical group and um, it's Take Five, which is uh, famous in a, I think it's public domain. (laughs) Well, I guess we'll find out. Um, And I've always loved Take Five, that whole idea of taking a break. But what really intrigues me is that it takes about seven minutes, seven and a half minutes, to play Take Five, <laughs> which says a lot about the, uh, the atmosphere and the approach to taking a break. The break may last a little bit longer than is planned, which is to say, uh, taking a break is about going off of planned time and onto unplanned time. So this is kind of half-planned and half-unplanned time. Welcome to Matins. I'm Father Timothy Matkin, and um, I thought that when my daughter went back to school, uh, that today was her first day of school. Uh, congratulations, Maddie. i so proud of you. Well, I thought that I would take some of that just dead time that I have between dropping her off and arriving at church, and, and then when the morning mass starts with morning prayer at nine, um, so I'd have to get over to the chapel about 8:45, 45 and uh, so I got about this half hour window so I thought uh, well let's put it together put it to good use and so I'll turn on the camera and start recording and we'll talk about stuff uh, so generally speaking what I'd like to do is um, talk about a couple of different things um, on each uh, episode uh, we'll begin with a, a prayer of the day and the idea there is not just pray but also to uh, expose you to different prayers in the prayer book and other resources. We'll start with the prayer book. And uh, once we kind of work through that, we'll go on to other resources. And uh, hopefully never use the same prayer twice. I wonder how long we can go without actually using the same prayer twice. But uh, we'll see what we can come up with. Today I wanna talk about uh, the Nativity of Mary. So I'm gonna do these programs, generally speaking, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, This Thursday is the feast day of the nativity, or birthday, of Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, But I'm not able to be with us, with you, on Thursday, because I have to go over to Fort Worth for a clergy day, and so that means I have to leave right after I drop my daughter off for school. So this Thursday we won't have the program. Next Tuesday we'll have it, and then I think next Thursday we might not have it, I'm not quite sure about the schedule yet, but I have a SSC Synod uh, going on. So, uh, well, we'll see when we get there. But uh, before we go on, why don't we begin with uh, that prayer? And um, this is, if for those watching, uh, and we want to put, the, put this on an audio feed for a podcast, um, basically our weekly podcast feed would have four elements. Uh, it would be two episodes of Batten's, and then the Wednesday Bible study, and then also the Sunday sermon. And it'll come out whenever we do it. So if we have a, you know, a week where I'm like this Thursday, uh, just not able to do it, we won't have that episode. Uh, if I'm not able to be here for the Wednesday Bible study, we just won't have that that week. Um, there'll always be a Sunday sermon. Of course, if I'm out of town and somebody else is preaching, then. Um, they have to record it themselves and post it themselves because I I, I won't be around to do that. Um, So most times we'll probably have four elements during the week. And uh, so for those who are watching, this is the um, new printed edition of the Book of Common Prayer 2019. And the green one, as opposed to the red one, is the traditional language edition. So the first one that came out was the contemporary language, and that is... Unlike the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which is Write 1 and Write 2, so it has a bit of both, um, these the green book is all traditional language, and the red book is all contemporary language. And I was uh, honored and, and privileged to serve on the uh, subcommittee that put together uh, the draft for the Traditional Language Edition. It was later reviewed and approved by the bishops. And I want to turn to a collect in Matins, or Morning Prayer, uh, one that I have grown to uh, love and appreciate. Um, And it's a new edition, uh, for those who are familiar with the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. Um, And it's the collect for Sunday, uh, To Await Christ's Return. I think it is uh, elsewhere in the back of the 79 book, in the larger collection of prayers and thanksgivings. Uh, but they decided to put it on for Sunday. And uh, so let's pray this with keeping in mind that it is written for Sunday, the feast of the Lord's resurrection. Every Sunday is kind of a little Easter. Let us pray. O God our King, by the res- resurrection of thy Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, thou didst conquer sin, put death to flight. And give unto us the hope of everlasting life redeem all our days by Thy victory forgive our sins banish our fears make us bold to praise thee and to do thy will and steal us to wait for the consummation of thy kingdom on the last great day through jesus christ our lord amen a wonderful prayer so many wonderful prayers in the prayer book and we'll take a look at those as we go through uh, things this Matins. Well, today I want to talk to you about um, the Nativity of Mary, the birthday of Mary. Also, we want to have some definitions. Now, we're going to need this as we go along. So I'm going to read that this is a wonderful book. I'm going to share a lot of resources that I've collected over the years. Uh, so this is a wonderful little book. I think this was a required purchase at a seminary. And uh, O'Collins o and... Paraguya, I, I, I can't even pronounce it, the authors, um, their concise dictionary of theology. And so what we're going to mention is the concept of midrash. And now midrash is, think of it as Bible fan fiction. So you know what fan fiction is, you know, somebody is really a, um, an enthusiastic fan of Star Wars or something, and they want to know about, um, you know, the ongoing relationship between Han Solo and and Princess Leia, and how did it work out? They obviously, as the uh, sequels uh, illustrated, they got together and they had a son and so on. So how how did their relationship go? And and you know what troubles did they face along the way? And how was their son born and so on? So you write your own little novel to piece together those elements that you already know for sure, but then in what it doesn't cover in the movies, how did it work out? And that's basically kind of what Midrash is, Bible fan fiction. So the definition uh, is from the Hebrew investigation or research, a method of Jewish exegesis, that might need its own definition, exegesis is when you pull a meaning out of a text, interpretation, a method of Jewish exegesis or interpretation, developed after the return from the Babylonian captivity. It aimed to edify by eliciting from a scriptural text associations and applications which went beyond its literal meaning. The Jews distinguished two kinds of midrash, midrash halacha, meaning conduct, which was concerned with the oral law, and midrash haggadah, or narrative, which aimed to elucidate non-legal sections of the Bible. So it's kind of flushing out of the story to play around with the elements and and kind of think out loud about what's going on. And I bring that up because um, the nativity of Mary is not in the Bible. Now, you can put two and two together and realize that, yes, Mary was born. Uh, she didn't just pop into existence out of nowhere. Uh, but she's her nativity is not described in the Bible, it's not narrated there. There are three celebrations of birthdays in the Christian calendar. Uh, And there are also three celebrations of conception days in the church calendar. So three biblical characters who are basically involved in the larger story of the incarnation. So of course Jesus, his conception day is called Annunciation The Annunciation, where the angel came to visit the Virgin Mary and said, "Uh, guess what, you're going to have a baby. And of course, Nativity of Jesus is Christmas. Everyone's familiar with that. The other ones are John the Baptist. So his conception day and his birthday are on the Christian calendar. And then of Mary, her conception, uh, which probably gained the the most notoriety of all, the Immaculate Conception on uh, December 8th. And then, of course, December 8th, add nine months, you come up with September 8th, which is the feast of her nativity. And uh, so we want to talk about the nativity of Mary, since we won't be around on Thursday when the actual feast day hits. uh, I want to take a look at the uh, prayers and lections in the uh, Missal. This is the altar edition of the English Missal. Uh, which is big and heavy and wonderful and beautiful. And uh, so it's got some intriguing things in there to take a look at. First of all, the introit uh, for this day is a wonderful introit. It is used on several of Mary's feast days. It's kind of a generic Marian uh, introit. Hail, O Mother Most Holy, who who didst give birth to the monarch, reigning over heaven and earth, world without end. And so that antiphon at the beginning often comes from the psalms or from other part of scripture. But every now and then, it'll be something that's composed, especially for a feast day, as it is here. And then after the antiphon, you have the verse from the psalm, as it usually is. And I think this is pretty much the same for most every Marian feast day as well. My heart is inditing of a good matter. I speak of the things which I've made under the king. So this is Psalm 45. And uh, that wonderful um, royal uh, engagement song uh, praising the princess who's get ready, getting herself ready for the king. The collect is um, really a work of art. Uh, all of the prayers on this one, uh, you know, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're very uh, bare bones, uh, Roman collects that are uh, not flowery at all, not poetic, but the poetry of the Latin is really about its conciseness and its play on words and uh, tension between the various elements. This is a little bit more elaborate, so it, it bears witness to a more uh, French influence, probably a, a Gallican origin. And it goes like this. We beseech thee, O Lord, to bestow on us, thy servants, the gift of thy heavenly grace that as the childbearing of the Blessed Virgin was unto us the beginning of our salvation, so the devout observance of her nativity may avail for the increasing of our peace through Jesus Christ our Lord, and so on. This is also a minor commemoration of St. Hadrian, uh, but we're not going to really pay much attention to him today. We're just going to talk about Mary. Interesting, the first lesson, the epistle lesson, doesn't come from an epistle, it comes from the Book of Proverbs. And as often happens on a Marian feast day, they pull out this Sophia wisdom language because wisdom is personified as a woman. Now that comes about because the word for wisdom uh, or Sophia in Greek is a feminine word. And so when you use your pronouns, um, that means you refer to it as her just like in English. We don't use this a whole lot in English, but the one that everybody's familiar with is the, uh, a, an ocean-going vessel, a ship, a boat, is referred to as her, uh, because the boat is a feminine noun. Well, here, wisdom is a feminine noun. Now, wisdom is a term that's used to refer to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who was incarnate as a man, named Jesus, Uh, but before his incarnation he's mainly known by two terms, Logos in Greek and Sophia in Greek, and so that is Word and Wisdom. And Word became the more predominant one, especially after the composition of John's Gospel and the opening chapter of the prologue, in the beginning was the Word. But wisdom is used for Jesus um, in at least two places. Uh, Saint Paul mentions uh, the wisdom of God in reference to Christ, and then Jesus in the Gospel makes a reference to wisdom, referring to himself. Wisdom is known by all his, by all her. Uh, well, now I can't remember. I've, my brain has slipped the rest of the verse. Wisdom is known by all her children. I think it is. In any case, uh, this comes from Proverbs eight. Uh, chapter uh, verse 22 to 35 and so it's always uh, a bit puzzling when I've come across these that are used for reference to Mary and yet they're actually if we think about it theologically references to Jesus um, but it's you can see the logic of it the the tendency to draw from it because it uses all this feminine language and of course Mary is a girl, is a woman. And so it kind of really fits. Also, when you think about God's providence and God's plan and bringing things into being and laying out and fulfilling the plan of salvation and so on. Also, there's this intriguing uh, conclusion that kind of ties in historically with one of the uh, elements of the story of Mary's background. So we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. But uh, the, the reading ends with, uh, Now, therefore, hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction, and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. Now, watching daily at my gates... um, is intriguing because it ties in with the story from an apocryphal gospel, um, the, the Proto-Evangelium of James, where there's this rendezvous of Mary's parents, uh, Joachim and Anna, or Anne, and they meet at the Golden Gate, and there's um, a couple of famous paintings of them rendezvousing at the Golden Gate, and I believe that's after they both kind of received messages from the Lord that... Um, their childlessness is going to end and they're going to have a daughter although i don't think it's specified at least in one of them i know it's not that it'll be a daughter but just that they're not going to be childless anymore they're going to be given the gift of a child and so they um both kind of run to share the news with each other and then they rendezvous at the golden gate of the city and so that's when they get to share the good news with each other uh, the good news that's been shared with them by um, messages from angels. Well, let's think about these uh, um, non-canonical infancy gospels for a moment. Um, first of all, well, let me back up just a second and, and read the other two colleagues, um, the post-communion and the secret. The secret is the prayer of the oblations. It's also a wonderful composition. It goes like this. May the manhood of thine only begotten Son, O Lord, avail for our succor, that even as he, being born of a virgin, destroyed not but hallowed the innocence of his mother, so on this feast of her nativity may he deliver us from our offenses and render us an oblation acceptable unto thee, even Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the post-communion. Grant we beseech thee, O Lord, that the sacrament which we have received in the mysteries of this yearly festival may both in this life and in that which is to come be profitable unto us for the healing of our souls. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The gospel for this day is, I love reading it, and it's the uh, genealogy of Jesus from Matthew's gospel. And I love going in and reading all those wonderful old-fashioned names. Um, Amenadab, Begat Aram, and uh, or no, Aram begat Amenadab, and Amenadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon, and so on. I love those old, beautiful, Old Testament sounding names. You know, there's some Old Testament names that people picked up and used uh, across America, you know, Jeremiah and Obadiah and so on. And then there's some that you never hear. And I love coming across those kind of names in uh, the Bible. Let's stick that back down. Let's talk a, mil- a moment about um, the origin of the festival. Like s- so many other feasts, it seems to have originated in the Eastern Church. It was first kept in the East, um, and it didn't probably show up until around at least 500 or so. Uh, in the West, we know for certain that Pope St. Sergius, who was in the late 60- 600s, Uh, ordered that four separate feasts of Our Lady should be kept in Rome, the Annunciation, the Assumption, uh, the Nativity, and the Purification. Um, But it's possible that it was commemorated elsewhere in the West uh, much earlier than Pope St. Sergius in the late 600s. So probably around the 500s, definitely into the 600s, it begins to sort of permeate and spread around and people discover it and get excited about it and like, well, let's take it back to our church and so on. Um, Let's see, the the feast of the first birthday of St. John the Baptist, uh, we know, was known around the time of St. Augustine in the 400s. So it is possible that it goes back even far earlier than the 600s, but it is something that comes in a bit later. It's also a part of uh, a growing interest in the people in the Bible and their backstories uh, so going back to uh, that old concept of Bible fan fiction, the midrash, uh, we find examples of midrash, and so the story about Mary's birth, and her conception and and childhood, is it seems like it's first laid down in what's called the Proto Evangelion of James, the first gospel, and here the Proto might be not just you know the first. Gospel, but more like the the prequel. You know what comes before. Supposedly it was written by James, uh, the half brother of Jesus, but um, we we think for certain this comes a bit later, uh, around 150, um, definitely by 200, but some somewhere in that window between 150 and 200, and it just kind of covers the early part of um, of Mary's origin and Jesus' origin and then stops basically I think when, when Herod wants to uh, destroy the infants to, in an effort to stamp out Jesus. So it's, it's really a prequel to the gospel and people wanted to know more and this tries to answer that question. What else happened? Uh, what is some of the backstory? It's definitely worth a read. Uh, don't consider it to be scripture. It's not. Nobody does consider it to be scripture. There's also another one um, that's much like this. It's it's the uh, first or infancy gospel of Matthew and it's a little bit shorter and Matthew's one comes much later and it seems to kind of take some of these early um, Midrash um, Bible fan fictions and kind of pulls together the details and harmonizes them in a collected story. So the one from Matthew kind of uh, tells you what all of the ones uh, are saying across the board. But the Proto-Evangelium comes first. Let me see if I can read one of the little passages out of here. Um, In this one, uh, Anna and Joachim are rich. They're they're well off. In the other one, uh, they're poor. Um, So that's a detail that's just kind of unknown. In thinking about some of these Bible fan fictions, what's interesting is that, you know, they're not historical, really, but they seem to include historical details, like, well, Mary's parents, what were their names? Well, this is where how we know, um, and it seems like it's reliable. Um, some of the stories in here are obviously drawn from Old Testament precedents, um, but some of the information seems to be straightforward and just uh, is probably historical. Anna, of course, is childless. Um, they seem to be older people. Um, and there's this wonderful um, bit in chapter three uh, where she's mourning about it. She goes to sit under a, a laurel tree and uh, there's a sparrow's nest there and it's chirping. It's got its baby birds, I guess. And, and mourning within herself, she said, "'Woe is me, who begat me, and what wound did bear me, that I should thus be accursed before the children of Israel, They should reproach and deride me in the temple of my God. Woe is me, to what can I be compared? I'm not comparable to the very beasts of the earth, for even the beasts of the earth are fruitful before thee, O Lord. Woe is me, to what can I be compared? I cannot be compared to these waters, for these waters are fruitful before thee, O Lord. Woe is me, to what can I be compared? I'm not comparable to the waves of the sea, For these, whether they are calm or in motion, with the fishes which are in them, praise thee, O Lord. Woe is me, to what can I be compared? I'm not comparable to the very earth, for the earth produces its fruits and praises thee, O Lord. So she's upset and wounded in heart that she has not had a child. And that's where an angel shows up and says, guess what, you're going to have a child. And... um, The angel visits Joachim as well and uh, says, you're gonna have a child. They rendezvous at the gate. Um, The child is born. Uh, There's interestingly none of the um, kind of elements of the story of Jesus that are pulled into that about traveling and no room at the end and all that kind of stuff. She's born. And um, in in one version she's born nine months and the other version she's born seven months. And that kind of seems to pull from a precedent of earlier famous biblical figures being prematurely born. Uh, but one thing is that she goes and lives in the temple. Um, there's a temple school uh, for virgin girls, and uh, part of it probably is the choir, part of it is like mending uh, linens and things like that. In, an, in another uh, infancy gospel, uh, she is, I think in Matthews, she is charged to weave... Um, the purple thread that will be a part of a new temple veil. And the, she's chosen for the purple because she, she's special and the purple is the most precious and valuable of the dyes. And so the, the most prominent one goes to her. Um, but she lives in the temple school, much like a th- cathedral would have a cathedral school. And it's from there, uh, probably her parents being older, um, they pass away during her childhood. And then when she's 14, Um, they have to shoo her out of the temple grounds and the temple school. She can't live there permanently because she's going to begin menstruation and that will be something that renders the the place unclean. And it's the temple, so we can't have that, so she can't live here. And so they find somebody to take her in and marry her. And uh, they get Joseph because Mary's taken a vow of virginity and Joseph has already been married. He's a widower, he has children. He's okay with that, and so that's how the story proceeds. For next time, I think I'll touch on this next time, I want to touch on a really amazing story. I'll cover um, perhaps news items and other curiosities and things like that, all kinds of different topics, but uh, I saw this last night, and it really intrigued me. Richard Mamana, who is the the brains behind um, the... um, Uh, what do you call it? Project Canterbury, which is a wonderful resource. you've got to check it out. And he, he's been posting pictures of churches around Pennsylvania, uh, particularly ones that have um, closed up and are not used anymore. And St. Luke's in um, what is it, Eddington, something like that? Eddy Stone. St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Eddystone, has the amazing story. Uh, he says, Pennsylvania people will remember well when the rector of this Episcopal Church declared himself Pope in 1977, following a dream in which God told him he was, and he, he, he picks a papal name at the beginning, and then later on he changes it to uh, Peter II. He said, the congregation did not long survive the Marian apparitions and bleeding statues that followed, but the building is still being cared for very well by the Society of St. Pius X. And uh, so we'll dig into that story next time. I found an essay, an extended essay on it, and uh, very strange, very bizarre, the story of the Episcopalian antipope. So we'll pick up that next time. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Delight to be with you. God bless. See you again.